0: Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political, and historical contexts here on Resonance 104.4 FM, which for 20 years now has been playing host to the most exciting radio in London and beyond. I'm your host, Juliette Jakes, and today I'm joined by Gareth Evans, adjunct moving image curator at the Whitechapel Gallery, and editor of the influential film magazine Vertigo from 2002 to 2009, to discuss one of the UK's greatest filmmakers. Today, Peter Watkins is perhaps best known for The War Game, a hard hissing docudrama about the likely effects of a nuclear attack on the UK, which was commissioned by the BBC in 1965, and then withheld from British screens for the next 20 years. The War Game... Was just one highlight of a film career that lasted for more than 40 years, making work for television and cinema, often challenging what Watkins has called the monoform, a standardisation of mass audiovisual media that, quote, promotes a rapid flow of changing images or scenes, constant camera movement, and dense layers of sound. In Dark Side of the Moon, the global media crisis, published in the recent book Future Revolutions, New Perspectives on Peter Watkins, he writes that These excessive demands on our emotional and intellectual responses can lead to blurred distinctions between themes and a confusion in selecting and prioritising our reactions, with the speed of delivery intentionally presenting information too quickly for viewers to properly process it. This critique of the moniform has been Watkins' driving theme Especially since he finished his last film, La Commune, in 2000. Like many of his works, this was a historical reenactment that brought in contemporary documentary techniques, its six hour length being representative of the depth with which he explores his chosen subjects. Watkins' films are not often easy to see these days. There was a recent retrospective at the Close Up Cinema in London. And while several of them are available on DVD, with a few of his earlier films accessible on YouTube, many of them, especially the longer works made in Scandinavia during the 1970s, are not easily accessible. For that reason, we'll focus our discussion on the films that you can see. As usual, we'll send out links after the show. We've already shared Role of a Lifetime, the short film he made with the Lithuanian video artist Diamantis Narkovicius in 2003, where he effectively explains that he's retiring from filmmaking. Watkins stopped giving interviews around the same time, so I just want to play a couple of minutes of his voiceover, partly because his highly distinctive voice is a regular feature of his work, but it will also give you an impression of his approach.
1: film I made which you haven't seen where my work has its birthplace, in a sense, is an amateur film called The Forgotten Faces, which I made in 1960, which is a reconstruction, in quotes, of the 1956 Hungarian uprising, which I made as if it was being filmed in Budapest, but I filmed just near Canterbury Cathedral in England. So the film is a complete cheat. And there are many people who've looked at the film and assumed that it was made in Hungary in 1956. And the basis for that film was the photographs taken in Paris Match and also many other photographs, but mainly a very strong series of photographs in Paris Match, not film, photographs, which I studied endlessly before I made The Forgotten Faces. I looked at these photographs, I looked at where the camera was and how the people looked into the lens and how sometimes there was a part of a body. In other words, I was looking at something to see how I would recreate reality and give it a special feel that would enable the onlooker to believe that it was reality, even though there would be other elements which would make clear, I hoped, that it wasn't. In other words, at that very beginning time, I was starting to play with, and I don't mean that in a superficial way, to uh, interrogate the form of what we call reality.
0: Okay, so that was Peter Watkins uh, talking in The Role of a Lifetime in 2003. Um, Gareth is with me in the studio now. Welcome to the show, Gareth. Thanks very much, Julie. It's great to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I think maybe we should just start the show um, by just talking about why you think uh, Peter Watkins is important.
2: Absolutely. Well, I mean, in terms of... Uh filmic uh, history, uh, his body of work is is really unparalleled I think. I think we should sort of set a baseline um, for his achievement I mean not only is the content of his work extraordinary, um, the boldness of his vision, the uh, political engagement the social, cultural, historical awareness that he brings to each film he makes but what's perhaps most important, I'm sure we'll come back to this a number of times uh, in the conversation is the relationship that he brings uh, to the uh, the relationship he makes rather between uh, the, the radical form of the work and the structural violence of his larger inquiry i think this is the crucial point um, about peter's work among many other wonderful achievements what he what he really does in a way that i can't think any other filmmaker has done um, so successfully but also so rigorously and so extensively is to investigate the structures within which we live and to find and to find ways to show the structural violence that we inhabit in all sorts of different ways this might sound like a very Um, heavy and and, uh, profound project in a way that is perhaps um, uh, visually and cinematically unappealing. But I would argue, of course, and I hope uh, we can talk about this throughout, um, that that's not the case at all. These are incredibly dynamic works of moving image uh, achievement. But at the heart of this project is an engagement with radical form, and uh, not only in cinema, but in, in society, and how structures of violence, I think, inhabit and shape um, our social engagement, obviously to the det- detriment of um, uh, much more productive human engagement.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting summary um, of, of why his work is, is so striking and so important and probably gives a clue as to why he's received so little institutional support, especially in this country. Um, Watkins was interested in war and conflict from the beginning of his career. He did national service in East Surrey, You know, like a lot of the UK's greatest creative artists. He was from from the East Surrey region, uh, born in Norberton in 1935. Uh, he studied at the Royal College of Dramatic Art before becoming an assistant producer of short TV films and commercials. Um, this led him into working at the BBC, and we're going to start the show off by talking about the two films, the two feature-length films he made through the BBC. You've already heard him talk about uh, one of his short films, Forgotten Faces. Uh, It's interesting that he worked through the BBC, um, because this imposed a certain structure onto his work, which, of course, he was then able to to kind of subvert until he came up against the limits of, of what the institution would allow. Uh, this is a critic called Antoine de Back in quoted in the um, Future Revolutions book, talking about Watkins. He says, the medium that was and remains the true contemporary of the work of Peter Watkins is, of course, television, both his cross to bear and his modernity. The filmmaker may have denounced the media crisis and the degeneration of television into a monoform. Yet Watkins has never been as effective as when borrowing for his own ends the very form he denounces, using its most spectacular techniques against the system for which it was originally conceived. In this way, Peter Watkins' cinema has been nurtured and formed by BBC and American network stars of reportage and news. So Culloden, uh, made in 1964, uh, does borrow this kind of TV documentary style it actually kind of uses techniques particularly that had been employed in vietnam war coverage um and it covers an episode that the english perhaps would rather was forgotten it covers the end of the jacobite rebellion that began in 1688 with an effort to restore king james ii who of course is roman catholic to the throne of england scotland ireland and france uh, the final battle um, was in culloden near inverness in 1746 uh, and this was a key defeat for the Jacobites to the House of Hanover. Um, up to 2,000 Jacobites were killed, only 300 government soldiers. Um, and this is something that Watkins depicts as a brutal massacre, and he really focuses on the aftermath. Uh, prisoners being tried in England for high treason, executed, land being confiscated from Jacobite supporters. Um And it really shows just the sheer brutality of war as well, the wounded, dying, tormented bodies. But it does this with this quite contemporary uh, documentary style um, to get a sort of sense of urgency. Figures are often speaking directly into the camera. Uh, The film is being made as if it's being broadcast live from the scene. Um, Television, of course, gives you some... Live television gives you something different to cinema, which was separate recording and projection. Um, So, Gareth, I wondered if you'd like to maybe... um, Talk a bit about um, about Culloden, um, and you know how Watkins kind of started using this this kind of docudrama technique.
2: Absolutely. Well, I think it's you know it's hard to um, to overstate the impact of of the first viewing of a Peter Watkins film, perhaps, um, because of their uh, slightly easier availability of films like Collodion and The War Game. I saw both those films while a student at Bristol in the mid '80s uh, on a theatre and film course there at the university, and you, you know the, these films are, are not long. They're you know they're around an hour and. I hadn't seen anything like it, and nor had any of my fellow students. Um, when we came out of the screening of Culloden, we were, you know, we were kind of shaken to the core. Not just by the injustice of the historical episode, but by the in- incredible viscerality and um, the intense presence of of the film that Peter had made to convey this reality. And and of course the ongoing um, sense of uh, injustice that pervades uh, various relations that England has with its uh, so-called United Kingdom and the world to this day. Of course, Coladen. Is both about a particular historical moment, but also about a much larger form of uh, colonial and imperial relationship. So I think the viscerality, um, as your um, your critical commentator uh, suggested, uh, the viscerality of Peter's vision um, does borrow, yes, to a certain degree, from uh, larger structures, institutional approaches to the moving image. Of course, particularly televisually and in terms of broadcast news and so on. But the I think the the the, the, the the undeniable impact of the work comes from Peter's own vision using those tools to a completely different um, uh, outcome than of course the, the models uh, we've already mentioned to to be on the the battlefield in Culloden for example, or to be as we'll talk about in a minute um, uh, in the aftermath of a, of a nuclear explosion um, in the way that Peter films it is is an experience that um, you know, is rarely matched in in cinema. There is the sense of the television in terms of it coming into one's own life, of course, in the corner of the city room or wherever the screen might be, which he absolutely uses. But there is also that larger filmic uh, encounter that we all long for, of course, the the, the, the much bigger, the much broader uh, encounter of cinema in the darkness as opposed to often in the light of the domestic space. And he uses both those elements, I think, profoundly well. But it's the it's the political, social, cultural, historical intent that I mentioned at the beginning that really drives the force of these films, I think. And uh, for an English person like myself, um, with very little um, uh, uh, political and historical awareness of some of these larger um, these larger concerns around national identity, um, to see Colloden as I did at the right moment, um, you know, was one of the great. Uh, one of the great encounters for me and it, and it set me on a, a way of thinking about what, what uh, uh, moving images are capable of both in television of course and also uh, in cinema but also crucially gave me a political and social understanding that I don't think I would have got from the page uh, in the same way and certainly not as a child growing up of course you know, within the moving image world as now children are growing up uh, effectively online.
0: Yeah, I mean, Culloden was one of the first films of Watkins that I saw. I saw it on BBC4 back when BBC4 would still show something like that. Um, the first thing of his I saw, I think, like a lot of people coming to Watkins films more recently, uh, was The War Game, um, which the BBC commissioned off the back of Culloden was quite well received. Uh, it was obvious that here was a very interesting and inventive talent. Uh, And so they commissioned him to make The War Game for their Wednesday play series in 1965. Um, Watkins returned the final film and uh, the BBC said that the effect of the film has been judged by the BBC to be too horrifying for the medium of broadcasting. It will, however, be shown to invited audiences. Um, It was also screened in cinemas and abroad. It won an Academy Award for the Best Documentary Feature in 1966, which made it harder for the BBC to argue that the film was being withheld because of a lack of artistic merit. Um, Watkins was kind of motivated by the fact that the public were woefully uninformed about and completely unprepared for the effects of a nuclear strike. Um, You know, obviously he's working just a few years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, um but Watkins picking up on what you just said about Culloden, uh I think one of the interesting things about the film is the way it takes on certain myths that Britain told itself, particularly recent myths that had evolved around the Second World War. Um one of the reasons why the film was quite controversial was because the film um doesn't tell you much about who strikes first in this Cold War attack. Um which, of course, gives you an interesting contrast with the frankly absurd scenes on BBC Question Time last year with those nine angry men yelling at Jeremy Corbyn for not committing to a nuclear strike. Um, In the film, the US authorised tactical nuclear war against the Chinese as tensions in South Vietnam and in Berlin uh, escalate in the 60s. Um, And the film is really an appeal to truth and a counter to, to propaganda, um, Watkins uses a lot of vox pops with members of the public asking them about what they know about the effects of a nuclear strike and how to prepare for it. He uses interviews with uh, nuclear experts to talk about the likely effects of a war. Um, but most of all, he um, he depicts the war itself. The film shows children being blinded uh by the nuclear light, firestorms that result, the complete uselessness of household nuclear defences, which were unevenly distributed and the public were not very well informed about. It shows the chaos of mass evacuation. Uh, It shows a nuclear bomb um, going off course and landing on Rochester in Kent, at which point firefighters pass out in the 500 degree heat. People get radiation sickness. There's a lack of food and medical supplies. Permanent psychological damage and suicides, a difficulty in identifying, let alone disposing of bodies, looting and riots that are put down by the military, the reintroduction of capital punishment, which of course has only just been abolished to deal with civil disturbances, traumatised children who tell an interviewer towards the end of the film that they don't want to be nothing, and a bleak Christmas service in Rochester Church, which ends with a rather caustic rendition of Silent Night. Um, the Sun attacked the film, saying that throughout the war game, there's not a glimmer of human resilience and humans are incredibly, wonderfully resilient. Um, so that's that's a kind of quick, capsule summary of the war game. I and mean, it's only a 50 minute film, but there's so much to say about it. Uh, Gareth, I wonder if you wanted to add more about... Um, about the BBC's refusal to show the film and the the effect of viewing it now.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, that was a very useful um, summary you've just given there, Juliet. I think the thing about the war game, of course, we could spend um, far longer than we have uh, in this programme. Indeed, we could spend the whole programme and many other um, subsequent episodes uh, talking about uh, the relationship the war game has to uh, uh, the BBC, to its own history, its own sense of its, its mission, if you like, its mission purpose, and also, of course, uh, the impact on Peter's work uh, subsequently and... Uh, the reception uh, that he and it has had internationally. The war game, of course, is you know is is uh, a key work. As you said, it won the Academy of War for best documentary at the same time as being uh, effectively completely suppressed in the UK for 20 years. It's interesting to note that, of course, the early 60s which led to the making of the film, were uh, a moment of great nuclear anxiety globally. And I saw the film, as I mentioned earlier, um, as a student in the mid-80s, again, uh, at the beginning of that decade, equally um, anxious around the threat of uh, Armageddon. So seeing it in a university context um, at the time of its uh, transmission uh, in 1985, after 20 years of being banned uh, in terms of broadcast, um, was absolutely startling, of course, uh, and uh, arguably more so if that was possible than Culloden, simply because, of course, it was... uh, um, taking place in a world that I recognised, that I'd grown up within. Um, I also significantly came across um, the uh, the book, shall we say, not quite the novelisation, but the uh, the uh, text and image uh, paperback publication of The War Game just before I saw the, uh, the film. And this, um, designed by uh, Peter's brother uh, in a very striking graphic way, uh, stresses at the, at the outset that... Um, the images and the, the uh, argument you're about to see, of course, in, in one way is a work of fiction because it has not happened yet. It hasn't happened, of course, in England. Um, we know about the two nuclear uh, explosions in uh, Japan, um, and, and yet, of course, the viscerality—again, to use that word—and the uh, the sense of uh, reality of the film and the book is unarguable. And I think the crucial thing about the war game, really, is how it it absolutely underlines the um, argument that I started off with, rather less eloquently than I would have hoped, about the relationship between uh, filmic structure and institutional structure, and there and they're within both, of course. These inquiries into the uh, the structural violence that we live within. There's nothing more violent, arguably, than um, nuclear apocalypse. Um, but the relationship that the uh, BBC has had to the film and the abuse of Peter's own cre- uh, creative practice and and. Uh, the uh, the, the, the not even shabby, far worse than shabby treatment they've given to the film over decades while still continuing to claim credit for it now um, is absolutely disgraceful. If uh, listeners want to search online for uh, Wargame and BBC they will find several recent postings that are completely uh, inexcusable in relation to their historical treatment of the film but uh, we won't go into that now. I think the the crucial point about the war game, which uh, led to questions in Parliament, led to governmental exchange with the BBC, and much else besides, um, shows the power of of course the power of cinema, which is hard to appreciate now. Um, Perhaps 50 years on, we don't feel that cinema has the same urgency, the same kind of cultural um, space for uh, for impact, uh, shall we say, to to, to use a phrase um, that, that that films uh, in the 60s did. Um, but the war game continues to shock. I think anyone who sees it for the first time now, it is fortunately available on on DVD from the British Film Institute, will be as stunned by it as any viewer in the past 50 years has been and that is a real testament to the uh, of course to the intentions that I spoke of at the beginning uh, to peter's uh, political historical cultural and social intentions as much as to the form that he employs to tell those um, to tell those concerns through
0: Absolutely. I mean, I saw The War Game again as part of the close-up retrospective that I mentioned earlier in the show, and um, if anything, I actually found it more shocking this time. The first time I saw it was paired with Threads, which I think is how a lot of people will see The War Game now, uh, which is a 1980s ITV uh, feature film about a nuclear attack on uh, on Sheffield, and maybe compared to Threads, um, The War Game seems reasonably restrained, but... Um, uh, seeing it again on its own was was really striking. I mean, there's one other film that I'd like to very briefly compare it to before we move on, uh, which is another kind of docudrama kind of film, also shot with some non-professional actors round about the same time, which was It Happened Here by Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Mollo, which is all about um, what it would have been like if the Nazis had taken the U.K., Uh, It's largely based on the experiences of people in the Channel Islands, which, of course, was occupied. Um, And it kind of takes the idea of keep calm and carry on to its logical conclusion, um, showing a society and particularly a nurse who just sort of just keep working. Um, And this film caused an awful lot of upset, again, because it like the war game, it really um, sort of contradicted the image of the UK that the UK wanted to portray to itself. Um, Just a quick quote from uh, Ralph Miliband talking about the likely establishment of normality or normalisation of a right-wing authoritarian dictatorship. Miliband wrote, There would still be cricket on the green and at Lord's, Derby Day at Ascot, the football season and the FA Cup, comedy on television, the same announcers blandly reading the news, the Queen's Christmas broadcast." Even the House of Commons, minus some unpatriotic MPs temporarily detained, and I kind of—I read this quote partly because I think it leads us interestingly onto his next film, *Privilege*, which was made under the um, under the auspices of Universal Studios. Um, Privilege, I think, is Watkins' closest thing to a conventional feature film. It fits a line of sort of late 60s and early 70s, this topic film that taken things like Antonioni's Blow Up, Lindsay Anderson's If and Oh, Lucky Man, obviously A Clockwork Orange, and I think stretches through maybe as far as Derek Jarman's Jubilee, um, made at a time when studio executives were really struggling to work out how to retain audiences that were sympathetic to a kind of anti-establishment counterculture. Um... And it's made at a time when the sort of liberating spirit of the 1960s was giving way to a kind of disillusioned disenchantment that we'll pick up when we talk about Punishment Park in a minute. Uh, in this film, uh, Watkins portrays a rock star um, who is played, called Stephen Shorter. He's played by Paul Jones from the band Manfred Mann. Um, portrays a rock star as a sort of symbol of 60s freedom, presents him as being kind of trapped and unhappy, uh, starts off with Shorter. Uh, performing a a song called Set Me Free in a jail cell with handcuffs being beaten by the police, much to the sort of excitement and horror of his audiences, gradually being co-opted through advertising. There's a very funny scene where uh, Steve is in a commercial that asks people to eat more apples to deal with a surplus... Um, and ends up with Steve being kind of appropriated by a combination of business, church and state for kind of conservative ends. He ends up playing in a Christian crusade week concert at the national stadium, which is actually St. Andrew's in Birmingham, um, with the audience waving placards saying that we will conform and kind of cosy British symbols being used, uh, the Union Jack, William Blake's Jerusalem, uh, and the Boy Scouts leading parades that are shot very much to be reminiscent of the Nuremberg rallies. Um, this is, of course, at a time of like people like Billy Graham in the US and even to an extent Mary Whitehouse in the UK, a kind of religious reaction against the, um, the county culture, um, as well as a time of kind of rising post-war nationalism uh, and a sense that the masses could be manipulated through um, through pop music. Uh, I mean, it's a deeply pessimistic film, and in particular its view of, um, of the audience is, is incredibly pessimistic. Um, I mean, I saw the film recently, again, as part of Close Up's retrospective. Gareth, I wonder if you'd like to talk maybe about how privilege looks now.
2: Absolutely well I think you know just in your introduction to the film you you mentioned uh, Brownlow and Molo's it happened here and it is important, um, as you said, to pick up on other works at the time that were working with you know documentary reenactment, shall we say or, or reimagination uh, through forms of engagement with historical uh, moments and episodes and of course that sense of of uh, of challenging you know British and particularly English forms of response to fascism or authoritarianism of course went down very badly with the establishment and the elite exactly as you would expect but also I'm sure as as Peter hoped they would uh, they would and of course Branlow and Moller they exposed um, the hypocrisy and double standards of those of those um, institutional structures very very clearly we must never forget of course the you know the Nazi sympathies of the 30s being very widespread through the upper ranks of, of British society and now of course these films appear all too prescient and sadly all too relevant again uh, when we think about where the line is drawn in terms of opposing authoritarianism um, as it grows daily across Europe and beyond so you know those 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 other works are crucial to keep in keep in, uh, in, in, in mind as well but you're absolutely right about about privilege i mean privilege was ostensibly of course you know borrowing the languages and and uh, and tropes and motifs, so on, of course, of, of swinging London and, and the, the counterculture of the mid-60s and, and turning to radically different ends. You know, Peter could see, I think, much more clearly than uh, most of his uh, colleagues at the time, um, the, co- the the co-option and commodification of that culture. Um, uh, very, very uh, cl- clearly, of course, in a way that was not uh, obvious, perhaps, to, to most people at the time, that what appeared to be on the surface forms of opposition um uh, a kind of underground of of uh, resistance, shall we say, culturally, was all too ready to be commodified and and to take, be taken on by larger corporate and uh, institutional structures. And of course, privilege shows that and pushes it to to one particular limit. As you say, it's a pessimistic film. The audience are passive. It's a challenge to the audience, of course, as much as to to any maker to think about how their own work can be uh, appropriated. It, uh, it was poorly received, and and you know, Peter left. The country shortly after, um, and you know, never uh, returned uh, to make work here again. And so that was a significant, again, another significant break um, in his ongoing body of work. But of course, it was building from the, from the moment of Culloden onwards, and and was certainly exacerbated by the, uh, by, the by the appalling treatment that, that he got for the war game.
0: Yeah, I mean, watching Privilege recently, I kind of. It's the one time I've really watched one of Watkins's films and just thought had a minor point of political disagreement with the film, which is that I did wonder if Stephen Shorter's audience, you know, at the point where Shorter is manipulated into um you know, taking on this kind of ultra conservative religious message. uh I did wonder if his audience would be quite so ready and easily brought along with him as they are in. In privilege, uh, whether there wouldn't be at least a moment of the audience saying, "What's what's going on
2: here?" Um, I mean, could I just come in there? I mean, yeah. I think. I mean, I think you know. Obviously, you know, there are there are plenty of examples of of historical mass mobilisation that are extremely disturbing. Also, moved extremely fast. We think of the genocide in Rwanda, of course, based on you know decades of tension. But galvanized over the space of weeks by radio broadcasts um, and turning you know what what was previously a kind of unease and a and a um, you know a, a, a sort of lack of of say social harmony, should we say into you know into into all-out massacre. Um, now that might be you know n- n- not quite an appropriate example to to bring, but I'm thinking also now more recently with, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, series about uh, American popular culture and society that obviously has recently been broadcast. And in one of those, uh, sketches shall we say uh, uh, a character of uh, allegedly a former prisoner that he plays um goes into a club and plays uh, a, a mashup of prison sounds um, that he pushes of course into uh, sexual abuse and and various other forms of violence the club uh, audience uh, stop briefly um, slightly confused by uh, what 's going on until the beat takes on again takes up again and they 're back with it and now that 's you know a, a sketch of a few minutes but in a way it does illustrate um, um, how easily, potentially, all of us are as audiences waiting to be, manipul- to be manipulated. And this, of course, goes to the heart of Peter's much larger project around the monoform and mass uh, audiovisual media, which we'll come on to later.
0: Yeah, um, you're listening to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliette Jakes. And today we are taking a sadly all too brief uh, whistle-stop tour through the phenomenal um cinematic works of, of uh, Peter Watkins the great English filmmaker um, so that actually leads us nicely on to um, I think the second or maybe third film of Peter's that I saw uh, when it was re-released on DVD in 2005 I uh, I reviewed it for the, um, the late and much lamented Film Waves magazine um, Gareth is kind of nodding as if he hasn't thought about Film Waves for quite a long time but I um, Punishment Park was uh, made at the beginning of the 1970s, but it felt incredibly relevant during the, uh, the George W. Bush um, administration and the reaction to the um, attacks on New York on the 11th of September 2001. Uh, I mean, its context is the protests against the Vietnam War and the kind of post McCarthy American political landscape. Um, The making of the film coincided with the Kent State massacre on the 4th of May 1970, when U.S. military forces fired 67 rounds at student protesters who were protesting the secret U.S. bombing of Cambodia under Richard Nixon uh, at Kent State University in Ohio. Uh, Four people were killed, nine others were wounded. Um... But also important here is the trial of the Chicago 7, the anti-war protesters after the Democratic National Convention of 1968. They were tried for conspiracy, incitement to riot, and eventually convicted after, uh, eventually acquitted after years of conviction and appeal. Uh, but it also taps into the sheer brutality of the Lai massacre in Vietnam in 1968, when the American troops killed 504 Vietnamese citizens, um, which the state managed to keep concealed uh, for a year. So Punishment Park, uh, again, is a kind of docudrama um, which, again, uses a lot of non-professional actors. Um, The film begins with the bombing of Cambodia and a state of emergency being declared based on the 1950s Security Act from the McCarthy period that allowed the authorities to detain people judged to be an internal risk to security without reference to Congress and, of course, the Subversive Activities Control Board interrogating members of prescribed organisations. Uh, In Punishment Park, uh, the scenario is set up that various uh, subversives, so feminists, conscientious objectors, anti-war protesters, civil rights activists, students and communists are all like rounded up, uh, put in front of an emergency tribunal of community members and given the choice of a full prison term or three days in Punishment Park. Where they have to cross fifty-three miles of the Mojave Desert in California to capture an American flag without food or water, being chased by National Guardsmen, with the premise being that they'll set free they'll be set free if they succeed, but sent to prison if they get caught. Um, the film cuts between interviews and scenes in the desert, uh, and between Group Six Three Seven who go to the park and Group Six Hundred Thirty Eight at the tribunal uh Watkins employed soldiers and dissidents to play the opposing parts um and they were chosen because they had political opinions that matched the parts they were playing Watkins said the opinions often matched so well that he feared actual violence would break out on the set and at one point the victims started throwing rocks at their pursuers one of the soldiers opened fire and the film team panicked thinking that somebody had genuinely been been shot um the participants were given complete control over their dialogue. Watkins had a script which he abandoned and instead let these people improvise within the um, within the given scenario. Um, I think Punishment Park remains uh, incredibly relevant, uh, not least because um, both Barack Obama and Donald Trump have kept Guantanamo Bay in Cuba open. Uh, of course, Guantanamo Bay... Uh, is cited away from American territory, meaning that U.S. jurisdiction didn't apply. The same was true of Abu Ghraib during the Iraq War. Um, so, Gareth, I'm going to bring you back in here. Um, again, I mean, I wondered if you'd like to talk about maybe um, Punishment Park and the Monoform, because this is the last of Watkins' kind of conventional feature-length works, I think, or at least the last one that we're going to talk about, Um and it does follow, it does follow a kind of identifiable kind of dramatic structure, even if not the kind of traditional three act form. I wonder if you'd like to expand on the structure of the film.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean that was again a terrific, you know, uh, um, summary of the of the of the narrative of of this extraordinary film. And and it's important to mention, of course, that it wasn't uh, the film that he made straight after. Uh, privilege he did make a film called the gladiators in sweden um, in 68 uh, appeared in 1969 which is available um, much harder to find on dvd but which actually also um, looks at the culture of spectacle and violence and uh we won't talk about that now but i mean it's certainly something that listeners who are enthused to go out and discover more about peter's work should should track down but punishment park absolutely puts you know the the sixes um very much um, into the context of dissidence. Of course, it moves from the countercultural underground, the the, the social artistic underground, if you like, that surrounds privilege into uh, into a much more politicized version, which also marks, of course, the shift from the UK across the water to the US, where the stakes were undoubtedly considerably higher, not least because of the events that you mentioned uh, just now. So, in *Punishment Park*, as you say, Peter really. Uh, plays, of course, very very effectively with you know with narrative and dramatic tension. The dice are massively loaded um, against the uh, the dissidents. Uh, it goes without question. But um, he obviously starts to interrogate the image as much as to just uh, let it play out. Even though uh, you know he he made those uh, innovations with script and improvisation and so on. And this is really where the monoform, yes, I guess, is where we, the monoform should come into this conversation because. Underlying all of Peter's work, particularly from this point on, is is a is an explicit investigation of the nature of the image that he's making. Not only that he is making, of course, but um, the, the media within which he moves, uh, particularly television um, and cinema. Of course, uh, these arguments can also apply now to social media where, uh, in a way, they're, they're even more high- highlighted and heightened because of the, the brevity and... Uh, surface quality of, of so much of digital culture now um, but in terms of the of, of television and cinema Peter's uh, theoretical understanding of what he has termed the monoform um, comes uh, from deep analysis across we should say and this is really important to to state across fiction uh, documentary nonfiction and uh, broadcast news media across all these forms uh, he has identified a language of editing of sound image relation and of content presentation that mediates basically against any form of independent uh, meaning or uh, critical debate, shall we say. Now these these arguments have been um, extrapolated at length by Peter in various places, uh, on his own very, very uh, um, important and extensive website, uh, just after uh, following his name, um, in the, the book that we've mentioned several times, um, and of course also uh, in various places online and elsewhere. But the monoform and its understanding uh, uh, its reading uh, his reading of the monoform within the larger mass audiovisual media is central to how we'll think about the the rest of the work that we talk about uh, in this programme, and of course, the work that he made that we we won't be able to go into detail on. Uh, This understanding that there is a structural relationship between the image that is made, the context in which it is presented, and the audience that receives it. And unless that structural relationship is fully understood, then it is very, very hard to make interventions into the culture in the way that one thinks. If one defaults to these settings, and pause um, uh, a soap opera, pause uh, a historical drama, pause a uh, news report about a genocide or uh, uh, a, a celebrity um, update uh, into these forms, then of course there is a levelling, a kind of terrible ground zero in which meaning and proper intention is effectively destroyed. And that is a, a, a crude and far from um, uh, uh, extensive summary of, of, of how Peter's. Uh, moving image theory has developed, but it's something we'll come on to a bit later on as well, I'm sure.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I want to move the conversation on now to a very different film to Punishment Park, um, more than twice the length. I think it clocks in at just under four hours. Uh, it was actually made for television, made for Norwegian television, um, and is a much kind of calmer and gentler film in some ways, but I think we can unpack that in a moment. It's his uh, 1975 um, television series on uh, Edvard Munch, the Norwegian artist who of course is most famous for The Scream, which um, recently became the most expensive painting in, um, in global history, although I think that might have been superseded since. Um, Watkins first saw Munch's paintings in 1968. Uh, and was was deeply struck by them Uh, i mean i presume he would have seen the scream already it's one of the most famous paintings in the world but he became more familiar with um with munch's work um munch i think differs from a kind of standard biopic of an artist a creative artist uh in a lot of ways other than just its length um it really kind of breaks with linear time um, even though it does sort of broadly follow him from childhood up until kind of close to the end of his career, but not not up until death. Um, I mean, a lot of artist biopics will kind of focus on either a traumatic childhood or difficult relationship or both. Um, you know, this film does that. In particular, there are a couple of traumatic childhood incidents that the film continually refers back to. Um, But this film really kind of portrays Munch's artistic methods um, and how they conveyed his psychology. And it portrays the relationship between the kind of creative practice, um, the political aims and the psychological background of the artist in a way that I've never seen done anywhere else and certainly not with the kind of depth and intelligence that Watkins brings to um, to Edvard Munch. I mean, another thing it does that I think is very interesting is really situates Munch within his cultural circles. Um, There are a lot of scenes where Munch moves to Berlin after one of the many negative reviews of his work that he encounters in his native Norway and elsewhere. so you see him in Berlin with obviously the Swedish playwright uh, August Strindberg, on whom Watkins made a, a long film called The Three Thinker that, sadly, I don't think we really have time to discuss here. Uh, so you see him with Strindberg, but also with a Polish writer called Stanislav Szywaszewski, who is long forgotten now, but was sort of quite an interesting fantasy author and a very uh, complicated character. Um I, I thought Edvard Munch was incredible. i as you know as a creative artist myself, I've never seen a film that really encouraged me to reflect so much on my own work, my own kind of successes and failures, my kind of regrets, the things I'm proud of, why I do what I do. Um, Gareth, you wrote an essay on on this film for Future Revolutions, um, so I'd like to just hand over to you to talk about um, why I think I think we we both agree like. Edvard Munch is our favourite of Peter's films.
2: Well, I mean, it's—I mean, I I adore the film. I'm—I'm incredibly moved by it. I'm as I am by you know, in different ways, all of his work. Um, Certainly, it's—it's arguably the greatest film about uh, about an artist, about a painter in this case. But as you suggested, about the larger creative process for all of us, about how work is made, how it relates to the life, um, the tensions and uh, challenges, the compromises, etc., of making work within. A life and a society and in that way it's the most personal of Peter's works for him and he's acknowledged that publicly on several occasions uh, and the other thing to, to mention um, among many other key points I guess um, around this film particularly is that it highlights so brilliantly as, as the films we mentioned do also to a, to a great degree how he works with uh, so-called non-professional actors um, his casting of the key roles in the film Um, you know, would deserve a programme in its own terms. But he uh, made radical uh, research um, uh, kind of live on screen, shall we say, by casting uh, people from neighbourhoods and districts um, that absolutely uh, would uh, uh, feel right and historically accurate to the film while, while also, of course, bringing their own lived experience to the work themselves. Uh, You mentioned that that I wrote uh, an essay on the film which I did for the book Future Revolution so it seems important perhaps to mention now um, the the book and the and the and the volume that preceded it because I'm not going to you know I'm not moving away from the filmic conversation at all but the the book we've been mentioning future revolutions was published alongside uh, a complete retrospective of Peter's work in in May and June of this year in uh, Neukern in Berlin uh, organised by the uh, remarkable sister to close up film centre to the uh, the Wolf Kino um, and uh, lead curated by Christopher Woods uh, who also Uh, edited the book with his colleagues, uh, and it's been published by Pogo Books in Germany. Now, the reason I mention that is because not only does the book do an incredible service to those of us who are interested in Peter's work, it's only the second book uh, ever published about his work the first being a monograph up to 1979 by uh, Joseph Gomez which is extremely important and and necessary but that is now um, significantly out of print um, and so this book stands in um, for you know a huge gap on the shelf but the reason I mention it is not just because of the book uh, it's incredible value and worth uh, or because of of the season at wolf that prompted it but because it shows how individuals um, in Peter's life, I think, have have made significant differences to how his work has been received and circulated. One of the key figures we're going to come on to shortly, or the the figures that have enabled the films to be uh, uh, redistributed, if you like, is Oliver Groom, a wonderful restorer of Peter's later work. But also uh, crucially, structures um, uh, of support outside of the mainstream, whether it be uh, the BFI and the BBC in this country who have failed Peter on on numerous occasions. Structures like Wolf Kino, uh, like The Public publisher pogo books like close up film center have stepped in um, along with many many others uh, individuals across the world to support peter's work when institutional failure um, has sadly struck yet again and the reason i mention that is because peter's work is finally and absolutely with and about and for uh, w- what we could call the public the, the actors in Edvard Munch are non-professional so-called but they bring obviously a, a strength of identity and um, response uh, and identification to, to the work that uh, it's arguable that any uh, so-called professional actor could. Um, but it's the form of collaboration that he engages with uh, in, this, in the making of the film that is uh, absolutely central to Peter's way of thinking about what film can be in the world as a kind of public space for uh, engagement. Because institutional hierarchical structures have failed Peter so badly, um, it's not not only because of that, but uh, as a result, he has created extraordinary collaborative structures, um, which obviously reveal his politics, his form of engagement directly. They embody it. but they also bring out uh, this body of work into, into the fullest possible response and reception it could have. These films are really embodied works. These are not in any way, um, as you've suggested yourself, they are not in any way dry theoretical treatises treatise about their subject matter or in this case about an artistic individual. These are absolutely vibrant living works, um, regardless of when they were made or about whichever period they were made. And that that is partly because of the openness of the creative process um behind the screen and you know, during production, as well as of course the space that Peter gives the audience um through direct address um within the finished product.
0: Yeah, I mean that um that's a wonderful summary of of Munch and a lot of Watkins works uh in the seventies 80s and 90s which you know sadly we don't have time to cover but um we will direct listeners to a full uh filmography and lots of extra resources as as indeed we always do uh we've got just over 10 minutes left here on suite 212 on resonance 104.4 fm uh i want to go from there into a discussion of watkins final film which is um you know just as much a masterpiece as uh, as the war game or punishment park or ever bunch uh which is la commune which he finished in 2000. Um, this is about the Commune of Paris of 1871, uh, which was an event that has long fascinated kind of radical left writers, artists, politicians. Um, Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, and Guy Debord and Rao Anagam all wrote about the Commune and what it meant for the kind of idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat or for like radical left-wing theory and practice. Uh, Berthold Brecht wrote one of his later plays, Days of the Commune, about it, uh, the penultimate novel in Emil Zola's Rougon macquart saga about the Second Empire in France, mid-19th century France, uh, under Napoleon III. Uh, Zola wrote The Debacle, um, which covered the Commune. Uh, one of the great silent, silent Soviet films, New Babylon by Grigory Kozintsev and Leonard Trauberg, 1929, also covered the Commune. Uh, which was a particular interest to to Lenin. Uh, famously, he danced in the snow in winter 1918 when he realised that the Soviet Republic had outlasted the 72-day commune that survived from March to May 1871. Uh, the commune emerged out of the Franco-Prussian war defeat at the beginning of 1871, particularly the Prussian siege of Paris that began in September 1870. And... Um, And it really posed this ethical question of when it was right to attempt to capture the state. Uh, The Commune was the first serious attempt to do so. And uh, Marx and Engels made their only edit to the Communist Manifesto off the back of the Commune, saying that it demonstrated that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machine and deploy it for their own purposes. Um, If you want to read more about the Commune... um, I reviewed a few years ago a book by Prosper Olivier Lissagaray, who was one of the many people exiled after the end of the Commune. Uh, When the Commune was crushed, um, thousands of people were killed by the um, Versailles troops who were sent to Paris to put it down. Uh, One of the survivors was Prosper Olivier Lissagaray, who wrote a book in 1876 uh, which aimed to counter the bourgeois slanders and lies uh, about the Commune and the Communards. Uh, which was translated into English by his lover uh, Eleanor Marx. Um, so that's some historical background to the Commune. Uh, I think Peter Watkins's film about the Commune is interesting, partly in its timing. Uh, obviously, the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 uh, meant that all through the 1990s you had this end of history idea, um, and you know this kind of this liberal uh, triumphalism uh, and the intense kind of re-litigations of the Commune of Paris uh, were one of those sort of historical projects that were seen as being kind of terminated uh, by this. Um, Watkins countered that, I think, by kind of, as he did with Culloden, uh, bringing the Commune into the present by bringing a critique of mass media coverage of important political events uh, into into the film itself um so gareth i think this might be a nice place to talk about this being the last time in which watkins um brought his critique of the monoform into a creative work uh so we can talk about just as the commune itself was a kind of praxis of um of like left-wing political theory um la commune is a kind of six-hour praxis of critiques of of global media and its political manipulation
2: of its viewers. Absolutely. I mean, The Commune, of course, made uh, 20 years ago next year in 1999 in two versions, the longer version you mentioned and a, then a, a, a shorter cut that Peter obviously um, uh, edited himself, um, is the is the last film that he's made currently um, and does in a way, you know, stand as a summary of many of his ideas. We should say again, of course, that since Edvard Munch, he also made uh, a number of films in Sweden and Denmark that uh, absolutely kind of laid the groundwork for this uh, larger collective activity of, of La Commune. These they are socially engaged projects in Sweden and Denmark, often with students, uh, one of which, of course, was The Free Thinker that you mentioned earlier. But also, most importantly, he made The Journey, a 14-hour film about um, the nuclear crisis of the 1980s, which is an extraordinary, episodic, uh, globally wide-ranging project around testimony and witness uh, to the nuclear crisis of that decade. And in a way, La Commune uh, takes the the, the the political and, and uh, and uh, socially engaged reach of of the journey and compacts it into Paris, into these uh, several districts of the city, drawing from... Uh, uh, descendants of the original communards from certain uh, bonlieue, uh, uh, of, of the metropolis um, finding that social engagement that you've uh, mentioned uh, and opening up the conversation both around the historical moment that he portrays of course the rise and fall of, of the barricades but also crucially of course how that is has been portrayed, has been represented and what those uh, what the implications of all of this are for us now. Uh, the fourth wall is broken of course constantly as in all of Peter's work previously um, but very movingly when uh, the uh, the narrative space of the commune is set up and uh, the reality of establishing a revolutionary foothold in the city um, uh, requires, you know, labour uh, in a very real sense. You know, uh, the cooking, the cleaning, the the, the management of a space. Um, then figures will frequently break out of their appointed role and comment directly to Peter um, through the through the camera, and of course onto us about the impact that this process is having on them and how their political um, awareness is being changed or raised by participating in such a project and crucially it's this breaking of the fourth wall I think that really um, uh, challenges you know the media structures that um, that Peters inherited of course that he's working within and around um, uh, and makes it very clear what his intentions are he wants to make a shared space between the makers whether the crew the technical team or the participants and those who are viewing the film. Now, it would be wonderful to think that La Commune could be broadcasted televisionally into the sitting room and we would have those political debates at home. That has not been the case, of course, like um, most of Peter's work, um, particularly the work after the early 60s, uh, more obviously supported uh, works um, these films have become uh, harder and harder to see they have been restored lovingly by uh, colleagues and fellow travelers um, and some of them are on DVD and so on as we've as we've mentioned uh, with you know with rigorous work you can find them all in various ways but of course these are not in ways that are collectively uh, um, uh, suitable if you like and not av- uh, they're not available easily uh, on cinemas and on television of course um, and yet uh, you know once one has encountered a work by Peter Watkins and is drawn one home to, to then see where this fits into the larger body of work, um, then, of course, the impact and the importance of these films becomes clear. Um, the fact that he has currently ended his uh, uh, practice of filmmaking with La Commune, which is the, you know, one of the great moments of collective struggle um, and one whose uh, ramifications have echoed down the, down the uh, decades uh, and, and uh, the, even a century or two since they happened, um, seems very fitting Um, But it doesn't suggest, of course, that the the struggle is over. It's not over by any means. And Peter's own recent appearance um, in London, which was hugely welcome after many, many years away uh, from the public eye here, um, and his conversation at the close-up retrospective that you've mentioned, um, showed how urgent and necessary this debate is about the moniform, about mass audiovisual media, about the structures within which um, the image and intention um, are communicated. Never has um, the media been more... um, Critiqued on one level um, for its its, its blurring of, of, of factual boundaries its collusion with with uh, the state and authority in various ways and yet the in, the in the actual structure of the image is rarely challenged the content you know of course is um, uh, on, on, on numerous occasions but the the structure of the image that is generating these forms of reportage whether in, in news broadcasts, whether on, in, in, in documentary or drama forms, um, is rarely, rarely challenged. And that's what Peter's work is finally um, seeking to address, um, while at the same time giving us the incredible pleasures, as I said at the beginning, of cinema and television and of uh, 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 an amazing sense of, of the historical and uh, creative moments that he covers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he's a genuinely extraordinary filmmaker and I, you know, I deeply value and and cherish his work and, you know, every opportunity I've had to, to see it, I've, I've done my best to take. I mean, there are two contemporary filmmakers who particularly come to mind. One of them because he, um, you know, also works at the BBC and that's Adam Curtis. Um, you know, the voiceover style of Adam Curtis's films is quite similar to Watkins in some ways. Um, you know, the efforts at like a structural critique and particularly an interest in the uses of history is very present. Um, I think Curtis's finest work actually is the um, mid 1990s BBC series, The Living Dead, uh, all about the kind of ideological manipulation of history. I think that's that's all on YouTube and that's genuinely extraordinary. Uh, The other person I really kind of, who came to mind and who I mentioned in this conversation with Peter Watkins at Close Up is uh, the Chinese documentary maker Wang Bing, uh, and particularly his nine-hour documentary West of the Tracks, which used the advent of digital technology to chronicle the forced closing of a, um, I think it's a steel factory in um, in China. Um, and there's four hours on the closure of the factory and what that means for the workers. There are, and then I think two and a half hour films each about the. Basically, forcible closing of the town that was built for the factory workers who were now no longer needed, and then two and a half hours on their struggle to rebuild their lives after losing, losing both the factory and and their home. Um, you know, I think Watkins's um, opinions on image manipulation and structure remain more important you know, have become more important than ever. Um, round about the time The Commune was made, um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, End of Days, was held the record for the fastest film ever made, I think well over 600 cuts in two hours. I'm sure it's been superseded now. But don't watch that. Watch watch Peter Watkins. Um, that's all we've got time for today on Suite 212. Um, thank you so much for listening. We'll send out links uh, with the programme on Twitter as ever. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be joined today by Gareth Evans. Um, I'll be back next week with an hour-long interview with another of my favourite living filmmakers. Uh, very, very glad that he's going to be joining me in the studio, uh, director of decasia and Dawson City Frozen Time, Bill Morrison. Uh, hope to see you there. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.